Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with my co-founder on Agenda Media, Tala Lambert. Hello, how's it going? Good. What is on your radar this week? There's been a fair bit um, on this week, but we're taking a look at Australia's parenting gender gap. Uh, and especially how it relates to professional sport and some comments that journalist Carolyn Wilson made this week that caused a little bit of debate, shall we say. Uh, And we're also looking at the decision by an all-male club, the Australian club, to disallow women members. And again, a bit of furor that came off the back of that. But what's on your agenda? Okay, so I'm going to look at the woman who's been donating billions of dollars And I also spoke to author Brie Lee about her new book, Who Gets to Be Smart. So we'll be sharing that interview a little later in this episode. So thank you for listening. All right, Tyler, how are you? I am okay, Ange. I actually moved house this week, so it's been a little bit of a debacle. But yes, I know that you moved house. I know. I know. I, know I have been talking about it a lot. <laughs> but there has been a lot on this week and um, a lot of, of, big stories shall we say um so I want to go just firstly to my quick win for the week if that's all good and that comes in the form of American journalist Rachel Scott um, who there's not very many people in this world uh there's not even many global leaders who would take on Vladimir Putin he's steely gaze and the fact that he could uh arrange for you to be killed in at the drop of a, a hat, uh, actually is a, enough to perturb most people. Um, but Rachel Scott really took him to task uh, during a press conference in Geneva yesterday and she essentially questioned his um, motives around political opponents and she questioned what he was fearful of. And really he didn't have a huge amount to say, which was really interesting to see because usually you know, he's on the front foot, he's very charismatic. We know that he uh, can carry himself well in those situations, but he had not a lot to give because I just don't think he was expecting that this young female journalist would really kind of take him on like that. And it was just such a cool moment to see. Um, She's such a powerhouse and there's been a lot of um, reports and adulation of her uh, over the last 24 hours, and I think very rightly so. Um, so I'm keen to see what she does next. Yeah, yeah. So go and see the footage if you haven't seen it. It's it's great to watch. You really do see how she just like kind of delivers this sermon and then sticks it with the question saying, what are you afraid of? And it was so powerful. And he did this like fumbling answer afterwards. He tried to kind of compare it to, Um, George Floyd's uh, murder last year and wasn't particularly successful with what he was trying to say. And then she went back at him as well and she went back at him even harder and was like, you know, your political opponents are either dead or they're in prison or they have been poisoned. Like, seriously, are you not willing to have an actual political fight here? Yeah, It was great. Well done to her. It was really, really good. Um, But what was your win for this week? So, and we didn't plan this, and I'm sorry, this one's also out of America, uh, but mine is Mackenzie Scott, who is kind of showing how to actually do philanthropy as a billionaire. So Mackenzie has donated a further uh, US $2.7 billion to high-impact and underfunded charities in the US, 
following the uh, billions that she actually donated last year as well. And she did say in her post on this that, you know, the media shouldn't focus on her, but um, I guess that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. And I actually think it is great to focus on these people because maybe it'll inspire the other billionaires in the club to do similar things. Um, so he's donated to its 286 beneficiaries covering schools and organisations focused on equality, the arts, female empowerment and global poverty. And I guess I, I just I really like Mackenzie Scott because, you, you know, do. I think, <laughs> you know, any kind of footnote to a story on Mackenzie Scott, you'll obviously see about her fortune uh, that she divorced from uh, Amazon founder Jeff Be- Bezos in 2019. Um she continues to retain a small stake in Amazon and if you kind of retain any kind of stake in Amazon, you're basically laughing at the moment. So, But now she's really giving it away. And the other thing with that is that it's not like she just got this in a divorce settlement either. I mean, she, she was there at the beginning of the founding of Amazon, which is often lost in this. So just a great success story of somebody who is now giving away the billions. And if I may just compare it to what uh, Jeff Bezos is doing, well, he uh, – the same kind of time he's kind of been announced this big space mission um he's worth we might put it out there he's worth us 195 billion dollars he's the richest man in the world he's expected to be the world's first trillionaire and he's going into space well done a billionaire in space it's exactly what we need right now (laughs) i I hope he has a successful mission i just think that there are other things that somebody with that kind of wealth and knowledge and um you know, I mean, he's clearly a brilliant individual. There are other things that uh, you know you could focus on, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm definitely not against space exploration, but just so many issues going on right now. There's, there's other things to do. But what is it with rich guys in space? Because it's Richard Branson, there's Elon Musk, there's Jeff Bezos. Like they're all obsessed with it, and I get it. I get that that's their kind of like plan B for when the world, you know, eventually disintegrates and they can, you know, rock off 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 to Mars. But it does seem very odd that this is ex- all of them are channeling all of their energy and money into that at the moment. Yeah, I think it's the ultimate like big swinging dick move. And I know that's like an old term, but I heard it today, so I wanted to bring it out again. But clearly, you've got to be part of a very, 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 very tiny, tiny club. You know, there's about you know what, three of them who can afford to kind of think about space exploration in this way so it is the ultimate like look at me but um yeah yeah we'll it see. really it really is I just wanted to say on Mackenzie Scott as well what I really love is that she does donate in such a different way to to pretty much all other billionaires so they most billionaires set up these foundations and then all of the money goes into setting up these foundations and then only a trickle of money actually goes to the actual cause. Um, Whereas she has very deliberately gone, these are no strings attached donations to various organisations. She's not bothering doing it in that way of setting up, you know, some big grandiose foundation around herself. Um, It really is just about kind of um, the causes that she believes in and, and getting the money to those um, direct organisations, which I think is really cool as well. So I'll introduce our next story. So it is on parenting. So over to the AFL where two St Kilda players, Seb Ross and Tib Mabray, have apparently upset fans for missing their Round 13 clash with Adelaide in Cairns. 
They missed it because they decided to head home. Tim's wife was about to give birth and Seb's wife was at home with newborn twins who are a few weeks old. Uh, So there's been some people who've expressed a lot of outrage about this and uh, there's been uh, journalist Caroline Wilson has, you know, noted that fans had a right to be disappointed. But really uh, we have Madeline Hislop has written a great piece on this issue this week for Women's Agenda it really shows that this idea of primary and secondary parents and that there is a massive parenting gap still out there, it's persistent and it doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon when this is how we react. What do you think? Um, Look, I think there was a lot of attention um, on Caroline Wilson's comments around this issue this week and you know she did come out and say that she found it disappointing and that as you said that um, fans had a right to feel um, let down by those two players who by the way weren't necessarily going to miss any games they just needed to get home at that point because their families needed them um, but you know that leaving that aside I I do find her comments disappointing, but I think you're right. The bigger picture here is on how we perceive these situations and family responsibilities and why we are so um, quick to determine that men's input in family dynamics like this is secondary, that they're they're not necessarily needed. Um, And, you know, I just cannot imagine, like, those that poor wife that has to five-week-old babies and she's at home with their older daughter as well um, and he has been on tour and he can't get back. Um, you know, that that is just a horrible predicament to put families in and it should never have been the case that they had to, to choose like this. I mean, everyone knows that you're under contract, that you have obligations to fulfil as an elite sports person. That's fine. But there needs to be some flexibility here and if we're ever to reach any form of equality around parenting, then we need to kind of look at this in a in a kind of more progressive, open-minded way. Um, and it was disappointing, I guess, Caroline Wilson, she noted herself that she has been a young mum and she was, she was, um, you know, giving her, her condolence, her commiserations to those young mums that are by themselves while their partners are playing. Um, but if she can acknowledge that, then, you know, it would be nice that she could, um, also acknowledge the reason for, um, those those men to come home and to to be with their families during this period uh and I just yeah I mean I think it's it's a good dialogue to have I think it was interesting that it was very much split like Caroline Wilson was right there were a lot of fans that were disappointed um that those players had made that decision but there were equally um a a large number of people that came forward and said no look we need to be doing something differently they have every right to go home um and see their families during this time um so I think that's great. I think that's great that that conversation has started and we're starting to move towards a point of, um, you know, yeah, being a little bit more accepting of of uh, this situation in its entirety. But, yeah, I think it, I think it was a good one to, to kind of highlight this week. That yeah, there is- definitely. Yeah. And it was a week. So this week I also interviewed Melanie Evans, who's the CEO of ING. And ING, and this is obviously the crux of our conversation, but a couple of years back they introduced this new paid parental leave scheme that would be 14 weeks paid leave 
for um, for any parents. So they made a point of removing primary and secondary uh, carer in that. So they removed the label and they put it out there and Melanie says this, which is great. She just says parents are parents. Like that secondary parent term is so loaded and it's kind of saying that you're lesser, that you're the second option, that your work is more important than your family, that your, you know, that your sport is more important than your family, whatever it is. And that kind of idea, at, you know, what level do you have to be at in terms of your work at where it's suddenly, you know, you're, you're too important for uh, to, to be at home with a family during these times. So I, I thought I love what they've done, um, removing the labels, no primary carers, no secondary carers, you're just parents. And they have got examples in their organisations where um, there, there is, uh, you know, a, a couple have actually been able to both take the leave because they had they had a, a, a baby during that period. And it's just these, this sort of sense that, you know, we, we're getting this in corporates but we need to, to challenge it elsewhere. And I think with the AFL, you know, they've had a lot of issues and this is such an opportunity to really celebrate this to go and make a point of giving access uh, well giving players greater access to parental leave and pushing for them to take it that it's you know an expectation rather than an exception that it's an opportunity to send the really powerful and positive messages to dads to really take this as an opportunity to role model this and I looked it up so the AFL has good paid parental leave I assume this is for its uh, standard workforce of I think they employ a few hundred people but they do still have the primary and secondary care labels, I noticed, on their, their um, policy. They offer six months paid leave for primary carers. That is, that is very, very good. That is, you don't really hear of many people getting six months paid leave from their employer. But then they only offer six weeks for secondary carers. And again, six weeks is, is very good for secondary carers. But like that is a massive gap that is sending a huge message in itself. Yeah, yeah. And I think every employer well, not every employer, but pretty much every employer uh, needs to do the same thing because, uh, yeah, those terms are very common and they exist in, in all organisations um, and I think, yeah, we need to, to kind of get rid of them altogether. Okay, Tala, take us on to our next story. A little place called the Australian Club. Uh, wouldn't we all love to be members? I can't wait. I just I want to go in there. I want to sit down. I want to just I don't, oh. I don't, whatever you're doing there. I'll, I'm, I I'm down. Spread and mansplain all the way <laughs> into every corridor. I, of I don't place. think we're going to be invited in as guests. Um, so, I feel like we've lost that opportunity. I know it's very very sad. But look, this isn't the point. So the I mean, if anyone missed this story this week, the Australian Club is. Um, quite possibly Australia's most exclusive all-male uh, gentlemen's club. Uh, and this week they, they held a vote to see whether or not they would want to allow female members. And lo and behold, that vote did not pass. So women are still not allowed to uh, be members there. They are, as um, Elaine Steed actually pointed out in a very good op-ed for us, um, allowed to be the servers and the waitresses and cut their cucumber sandwiches, but they are not allowed to be members. Um, and it was an interesting one because I'm not opposed to um, kind of all male or all female spaces. I think that they absolutely have a place, um, especially when they're protecting people that are vulnerable and 
um, you know, we see lots of all-female gyms and all-male gyms and things like uh, I think it's the man shed around um, men going there to seek, uh, you know, other uh, other men and male conversation when they're going through mental health issues. These are all amazing spaces. Um, but the issue with the Australian Club is that it is this incredibly privileged, predominantly white space um, where a lot of Australia's kind of wealthiest, most powerful people reside. So former politicians, um, you know, prime ministers like John Howard and uh, Malcolm Turnbull frequented it. Um, There are uh, judges and lawyers and, you know, business people and everyone that, that has huge influence in this country. And I think the issue with this vote being handed down is it really um, it really highlights, and you put it so amazingly well in the op-ed you wrote about this as well, but it really does underscore the fact that women are still routinely excluded um, in these spaces but across the board. And these the men that are in positions of power and making these decisions um, if they're making this kind of decision in a space like the Australian club, then they're likely doing it within their organisations as well. Um, And I think that it it points to a bigger problem um, when we have that level of power uh, and, you know, this unwillingness to kind of let women be seen and let women be heard and accepted and embraced. Um, So that is my issue with it. Um, but you you wrote an amazing piece around it. So what was your take? Thank you for sharing that about the idea of male and female only spaces because I did write a piece and that is not the point that I was trying to make. I was not trying to say that you cannot have an all-male space. There are all-male spaces. They exist. There's all-female spaces. That's fine. My issue, first of all, I might say I don't particularly like those sorts of things, but I do think they serve a great purpose when it comes to mental health and when it comes to uh, physical health as well. Gyms, great, awesome. I think I I love the fact that men can go work out in their own gym, women can have their own gyms. Um, And that is a point that was made constantly. I was like, oh, women have Fernwood. Can I just say that there are gyms out there that are all male as well, just for anyone wondering about that. There are also clubs out there, exclusive clubs that are all female. What I don't like about these things is those ones that like basically make it so impossible to get other people in that they are they retain their exclusivity and their entitlement and they retain the network and they don't offer the opportunities for other people to get in. The Australian club is a great example of that. But you know what? There are women's clubs that also do this. Women's clubs that say that you have to have, say, a graduate degree and you have to be introduced to get in here. This kind of exclusivity thing still goes on everywhere. It it is happening. I don't like that. I think we need to break those barriers down because that is just ridiculous. That's just perpetuating the same type of leadership, the same type of uh, entitlement over and over again privilege just saying hey we're only going to give access to privilege and that's just bullshit leaving that aside particular issue with this one because it is dominated like you say by the most powerful people in the country whether they are currently in those roles 
or not, they've recently retired from those roles and they are no doubt mentoring the other little network that goes on and whatever happens in the Australian club in those roles as well. And we can get an idea. There is no kind of breakdown of uh, race and things like that regarding these members, but I think you can get a bit of an idea of of what this club's uh, membership looks like. And my issue is the fact that They've been debating this issue for years. It's not like it just came up as some random vote on a Tuesday morning. This has been in the works for years. And this is the result that they come up with. Not just like two-thirds voted no to this motion of should we allow women into this or not. Two-thirds. Very disappointing to see. And one of the points that I made, and it was made by Jeff Cousins, who has actually quit the club in disgust by what happened in that vote and he, he mentioned some of the reasons that people gave for why they said no and it's just absolutely ridiculous. But he, he you know, he made the point that some of these people are board directors, they might be CEOs, they're senior leaders in organisations and they might be then going and signing off on like gender equality statements and talking about how diverse and great their organisations are and like, come on, you you, you, you can't be saying that you're not going to allow half the population any kind of access to membership of this, you know, over-the-top exclusive club and then going out and, and, and doing that. So I reckon we might see some more resignations of memberships from this club and I think that we'll see more information. Someone's going to poke around and get more information regarding um, who all the guests are and, and, and who all the members are who are a part of this club. Everyone in the government that is still currently a member better scurry because they've had enough scandals. Um, (laughs) Yes, exactly. This is the perfect topic to go into because I have done this interview with uh, Brie Lee, who is an author, and she's just published her latest book, Who Gets to Be Smart, which really takes a look at the Australian schooling system. And it's basically... Um, explores uh, knowledge, power and privilege across these institutions, Um, especially looking at that idea of whether knowledge is power. Um, And Brie, she also dives into her own privilege in this and her own presumptions about um, what it takes to be smart and what the pinnacle is about of um, educational brilliance. And I guess what she finds is that, you know, that it's not really equality of opportunity going on when it comes to the school system. Like the divide is absolutely shocking. So I think that is a nice uh, follow-up to the conversation that we just had regarding, uh, I guess, the exclusivity and these networks and who gets to exist and thrive within these sorts of things. So across to that interview now. Thank you so much for joining me, Brie. Congratulations on your new book. Thank you. And thank you for having me. In this book, so quite different to your last work as well, but in this one, you describe how Virginia Woolf once called Oxford uh, a stream of gold and silver. And this is at the start of your book, and it kind of outlines the premise of what is to come. So without giving too much away, I thought that maybe you, you, you could start by sharing a little bit more about what you discovered. Yeah. So my brilliant friend Damien, um, and he and I are still friends, uh, found out that he got a Rhodes scholarship in about 2017. And so in 2018, I went over to visit him there at Oxford and he gave me a tour both of Rhodes House, but also of Oxford more broadly. And I was very, I mean, this was at a time when I was very sort of starry eyed about that place and 
and what that represented. And I, at that time in my life, I very much believed that a Rhodes Scholarship was the sort of apex of academic slash intellectual achievement. Um, and I went over there and I was so shocked to realise just how much these places are stuck in the past um, and just how much these places revere bygone times in which um, very specific and small groups of people were allowed in. And so Virginia Woolf talks about, um, and we are approaching the 100-year anniversary of A Room of One's Own. And A Room of One's Own is, um, you know, it's wonderfully agreed upon as sort of like a, a feminist 101, but it's also quite a grueling, it's also quite an examination of class. And so what she talks about is the streams of silver and gold that have flown in particular directions through these institutions through time. Um, and they go, basically, the money goes from rich people to the next generation of rich people to the exclusion of all others. And so I was really shocked by seeing all of that at Oxford and especially with the Rhodes Scholarships, it's quite extreme. But what I was then sort of really surprised by and how this project turned into a full-length book was when I came back to Australia and I started asking those sort of tricky questions in the Australian context. And I realized that we are a sort of good little colonial outpost um, who do things even worse over here than, than in many ways than they do over there. I might just stop and ask you about the Rhodes Scholar thing because um, you, you talk about that as, uh, yeah, like as being the ultimate um, ability of, to win, I guess, uh, the educational system. What did you do? Who gets to be a Rhodes Scholar? <laughs> well, I mean, there is a lengthy and quite extreme application process. Um, you need to have exceptional results at school. You need to have demonstrated uh, an inclination to sort of give back to the community. There's also a sort of either sports or activities component. It's it's all of these different things. And it is the case that um, sometimes Rhodes Scholars will come from sort of comparatively disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, but overwhelmingly, it's sort of pretty easy to imagine that the kind of young person who is able to excel academically as well as doing a dozen different extracurriculars as well as volunteering um, is overwhelmingly that's going to be a particular type of person. And so, for example, my friend Damien is really brilliant, um, but it is also undeniable that he went to a very rich private boys school in Brisbane. Both of his parents and every single one of his siblings are now doctors. Um, it's that. There are also um, Rhodes Scholars. Some Rhodes Scholars have been the most outspoken against the sort of colonial legacy of the scholarships program. Um, but, yeah, I, I, it's a very sort of extreme and privileged place to find yourself in. And, and typically that is reflected in who even is aware of the program and who is encouraged to apply and who can get the types of letters of support you need to win. Yeah, I felt like that awareness of the program was interesting um, because I think I, I look at that and it's something that I wasn't necessarily aware of um, or had never even thought of personally as being any kind of pinnacle of achievement. I guess I hear about former prime ministers and the like having, having done this. Um, to your friend Damien, and I'm glad you're still friends, um, which is great because he does sound like a, a brilliant person. But and, and you know, like he's a, a rower. I think that was his extracurricular activity. Um, he played in in he played music. He was in the orchestra. There's things like that, which just to have this holistic view around 
yourself and all these wonderful things that you're doing. I guess could anybody in a different situation, not at the private school, maybe not the uh, son or daughter of doctors, not with all that kind of, you know, that level of privilege, but still aware of the uh, of an opportunity like being a Rhodes Scholar and determined to work, could can other people work just as hard and, and make it happen? Um, I would say the they would be an exception um, to the overwhelming rule, and we always have these people who are exceptions, and they are often held up as examples of how our country or our systems are meritocracy. Um, but the fact is that that those people are, they do exist and certainly they are um, to be commended for their efforts. Um, but if we focus on those sort of unicorns, um, if we focus on them too much, we do so at, at the peril of ignoring overwhelming and undeniable trends that show that the rivers and streams of silver and gold still do flow in particular directions. And I mean, one example of this is that like an example I think that illustrates this is that until very recently, that rich boys' school that Damien went to, any time one of their students, former students, um, was named either a Rhodes Scholar or a priest, they would ring a bell and everyone would get a day off. Wow. That okay. is how, <laughs> like, and, 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 you know, like this is, what's really interesting to me is that I was, you know, r- lucky enough fortunate enough to go to the sister all-girls school, to, to Damien's all-boys school, and we didn't have any bell that rang if a woman was named a Rhodes Scholar or became a nun. You know, there, there, there are class elements here, there are um, religious organisation elements, there are gendered elements, there are geographic elements. It, it all converges. Yeah. Okay. So let's get more into the Australian education system. What were some of the more interesting things that you discovered about these these disparities, I guess, around who gets to excel to the educational system? Yeah. I mean, most of us have a sense that, you know, the rich schools might have, you know, the ovals and the sort of castle looking buildings and, and the poor schools don't. Um, but what I was truly shocked to realise is just how bad it's gotten and how much worse it gets every single year. So about four decades ago, um, only about 15% of students in Australia went to private schools. And so you've always had, yes, you've always had the sort of disparity between rich kids and poor kids and what resources they get in order to learn. But where we're at now in recent years is that in Sydney and Melbourne at secondary schools, it's 50-50. Half of the population are at private schools and half are at public schools. And overwhelmingly, almost 90% of students with any kind of higher needs, so that could be, yes, kids with disability, but it's also like English second language kids or or kids in um, poor and regional areas, any children who need, who are identified as needing some extra resources to be able to sort of have a shot, to have an equal chance at achieving their potential, I think it's 88% of them are at state schools. They are being overwhelmingly left behind in a system that keeps talking about choice, keeps talking about parental choice and keeps encouraging the system to become more and more of a sort of open and free market approach. And the problem is that it just makes children winners and losers in the free market. And I just couldn't, 
I really couldn't believe how extreme and how obvious the problem has been allowed to become. And it's just, it just keeps getting worse. And it's shocking. You've got schools where they've identified that their kids are turning up hungry and they want to be able to run a breakfast program and they can only afford to do that three days a week. And you've also got schools in Australia who have firing ranges and orchestra pits and two-storey swimming tanks so that kids can learn how to scuba dive. And both of those schools still receive lots of government funding. And I, I think the thing that shocked me was that even if you consider yourself um, to, I don't believe in this binary, but if you think that you are an equality of um, opportunity rather than equality of outcome person, I'm sure we can agree that if you're talking about children being hungry at school, that's not equality of anything. And also what I couldn't understand is, is if you want education to be a free and open market, well, then why why are these very, very rich schools still getting so much like government funding? It is, it's extraordinary. It's, it's really, it's middle-class welfare at its worst. And the, and the stats don't lie. We have, of, of all OECD nations, Australia has the fourth most segregated by class schooling system. The numbers just don't lie. And over, we think we do things the way other people and other countries, comparable countries do, but they, we don't. In Canada and the UK, you still only have single digit percentages of kids going to these crazy private schools. And in Australia, we just have, we're moving more and more towards a society cleaved down the middle, 50-50. Most of those schools have some religious element as well. Is that correct? So does that mean at least, you know, we're looking at 50-50 and of that there's some kind of edu- uh, religious involvement as well in the schooling of those students? Yes. So um, the vast majority of private schools in Australia are Catholic schools. Um, that's also not the way it is overseas. That's a sort of unique um, idiosyncratic thing about the Australian system. And actually, the thing I, I would say, one of the stats I was most shocked to find out about, one of the things, was that all of these um, confidential documents were leaked to ABC News in 2020. It should have made far more of a sort of headline, but I think it was one of the news stories that got lost in amongst COVID. Um, and all of these leaked documents showed that the New South Wales Catholic school system, for years and years, getting progressively worse, had been taking money that was allocated to them for poor and small schools and giving that that money to rich inner city schools. And the only reason we know about that is because these documents were leaked and that all of that money being taken from poor kids, given to rich kids, was done at the directive signed off on by the bishops. And you're talking about, and the backdrop to that is that in years, at least six years leading up to those reports being leaked, the New South Wales education sort of funding reports were recommending more transparency about how the Catholic system funds its schools. Because at the moment, the government identifies how much funding the children at Catholic schools needs and gives the lump sum to the Catholic education system and just trusts that they'll do the right thing with it. And I think it's fair to say that the terrifying an incredibly unethical picture painted by these leaked documents would be the tip of the iceberg. Mm, wow. Yes. I, I want to ask about um, gender. 
and what you found around gender. Now, one thing I know that you did find is looking at these stats around boys doing better in the co-ed schools and girls doing better in single-sex schools, which is, um, I think, really important to unpick as to why that is the case. So what do you think is at hand there and what should be done about it really? Right. So this is this idea that boys do better at co-ed and girls do better at single sex is um, often incorrectly sort of spoken about um, and has become a kind of a um, like, what do you call that? Like accepted knowledge, conventional wisdom. What I learned was that specifically um, girls have better confidence and feel better about who they are and have a better ability to accurately assess their strengths and weaknesses when they are at single sex schools. And what then happens is that in particular in classes like um, STEM STEM classes, maths um, and science, for example, that confidence and that comfort in themselves and that sort of sense of self does then translate into better results. And what's interesting to me is that, number one, I think if we're talking about young people's well-being, confidence in in themselves and a sense of self is important in and of itself. Um, And often that gets lost in a very telling focus on results only. Um, But the other thing that is, I think, pretty damning is that the disparity in results and the disparity in how these people feel about, how these young people feel about themselves is most obvious in really gendered class, like gendered subjects, I should say, at school. And so what that's telling us is that it is not just a girl's peers that are affecting her, but it's also very much about society and unfortunately also about teachers. Um, and it's, I think it's just sort of obvious. It's, it's the same as the stuff I found out about courtrooms um, in my, with my first book, Eggshell Skull. If we, have, if we have gender issues out in society, it would be absurd to think that those don't automatically bleed through to a jury room, to a classroom. Um, we are absolutely communicating to our young people what we think they are going to be good or bad at. Um, and that, that then comes through. Mm. Mm. And these are obviously the key thing here is around, I guess, STEM subjects. And again, we see so many programs initiated at a government level, also from corporates and tech companies and that kind of thing, trying to build confidence in girls around STEM subjects. Do you see that as the right approach or is it really kind of almost too late by that point? Um, Well, I think it doesn't hurt, certainly. Um, Anything we can do to encourage more girls and women into STEM is fantastic. I think it's better to have those programs running from school age because what I've seen a lot of is is um, corporates and government trying to encourage women um, to get into STEM, uh, willfully ignoring the many serious factors that are actively pushing women out of STEM. Um, and so, no, I think the younger we start these encouragement programs, the better. Maybe just to finish up here, but given everything that you've discovered and some of the things that you've outlined in this conversation, if there was one 
you know, massive key change that you could make to the educational system, say, you know, to wave a magic wand or whatever it would be, what would you do? I know exactly what it would do, um, which is the thing, it's a response to the thing that made me most sad to find out when I was researching for this book. And a lot of things in this book made me mad, but the thing that made me saddest uh, was realising that one in five five-year-olds in Australia, 20% of five-year-olds in Australia start grade one not being able to meet their developmental milestones. And so what that means as well, as you can imagine, is that the kind of kids who have not been as well resourced and supported in early childhood learning um, often come from families who aren't then financially able to send them to schools that are so incredibly resourced that they can make up for that lost time. And what we also know just about children and young people and development is that the first 10 years of life are absolutely critical. Um, and the thing I would change um, is that we all stop using the word childcare. We start using the term properly, early childhood, early childhood education, sorry. And like, thank goodness we live in a country where for a child of five years and above, they have a free education. And we can argue about how that is currently unequally resourced, but the fact is they get a free education. That is essentially a child's right because we can, we, we've identified that we live in a rich enough country that we can and therefore should do that. But for some reason, we consider education for people of ages four and below welfare and like 20% of kids are struggling because of it. And if I could pick one thing, it would be for Australia to acknowledge that we have enough money to give, to treat every child's right to an education as something that commences from birth rather than commencing at five. And that would be huge. That is excellent. And we are well on board that change. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I don't know that I was necessarily expecting you to go there, but um, what an interesting way to look at it particularly. And as we know, that first 1,000 days and as we know, those first 10 years are so critical to a child's development and what is and the outcomes that they'll experience later on. So I think that's a great goal to set in terms of, yeah, let's quit calling this childcare. Let's call yeah. it what it really is. And, let's and I mean, I'm as much of a, you know, feminist as any, but it's just been really frustrating to see the public debate about early childhood education get framed as a matter of childcare, where the intended outcome for more government funding is to get women back to work. And I just, I really think we need to pivot our framing of the conversation to acknowledge that early childhood education is a right. And if we can get that happening first and foremost for the children, it may be a wonderful, happy auxiliary benefit that women can get back to work. But if we keep asking for funding for women and framing this as a women's issue, it's just not going to work and it'll suck for women and it's currently sucking for 20% of five-year-olds. Brie, thank you so much. Congratulations again on writing an excellent book and also your previous work as well, um, Eggshell Skull and also On Beauty. They're all great books and beautifully written always, which is what... I love that you bring to these sorts of conversations is that you write so beautifully and you pack in so much information and knowledge and create a great narrative and story along the way too. Thank you so much for the conversation today and so many things to think about. Thank you for having me, Angela. Best wishes. That was Breathe It. 
Heaps of interesting ideas. Uh, we will. We have got a story on women's agenda as well if you'd like to delve into that further. Her book is Who Gets to Be Smart. You'll find it in all good bookstores. Um, it's got some great reviews and some great uh, people endorsing it as well. So go and check it out. Tala, I've got nothing else. What about you? <laughs> that is quite the finish. Um, no, look, I think I'm... I'm all storied out as well. Um, I'm going to go and make some cookies or do something completely make some domestic. Cookies. Yeah, wow. I know. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. I think yeah. that's, yeah, that's not going to happen on a Friday night. I will drink some wine. How about that? That sounds good. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can find all the stories that we discussed on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Um, We did discuss mental health in this episode and if it did raise any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. A reminder also that if you are in immediate danger, call Triple O. And if you need any help and advice, uh, you can also call 1800 Respect or 1800 737 732. Thank you for listening.